I want to invite you to turn with me once again to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. The 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, and out of respect for the authority of God's Word, would you stand with me for the reading of His Word today? We will read one verse together, verse 13, John 17, verse 13. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer, utters these words to God the Father. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Let's pray. Father, what a, a, a joy it has been to walk uh, slowly through the high priestly prayer of your son. We thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, for uh, the obedience that you demonstrate, uh, the passion for the glory of your father that you make manifest. Uh, God, you are our savior. You are our friend. And now we see uh, the importance of joy that is before us. May we see it. May we savor it. May we uh, taste it. May we experience it. God, I pray for so many this morning who may be uh, battling in this area, whether it's uh, despondency, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, uh, misplaced priorities, whatever it is that is hindering us from ex- experiencing the life of joy that you intend for your people. I pray that there would be uh, kind resolution today, that today would be, uh, once again, a, a day of encouragement, that as we leave this place, that we would be uh, filled with hope, that we would be reminded of the, the beauty of the gospel because we serve a beautiful Savior. We ask that you would uh, be with us as we study your word together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is an inner ache in every person, and I think each one of us can relate to it. Even on our best days, our very best days, when the sun is shining, when we have everything we think we need, when our relationships are blossoming, on the best of days, we realize there's something more. There is something or better yet, someone who will satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts. And we know it. Yet I would argue that most people, even in the church, as we will explore here in a few minutes, continue to pursue a joyless existence, even though their lives are filled with things that make them happy. The famous writer Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote these words many years ago in his journal. He said, tomorrow, my birthday, 31 years of age. Oh, me. My very heart dies. Why have I not an unencumbered heart? These beloved books still before me, this noble room, the very center to which a whole world of beauty converges, the deep reservoir into which all these streams and currents of lovely forms flow, my own mind so populous, so active, so full of noble schemes, so capable of realizing them, oh, wherefore, I am not happy. Those are the words that gripped me, and I trust they will grip you as well. This very influential and very popular writer admits with millions of people all around the world, oh, wherefore, I am not happy. On a more grave note, consider this suicide note that was left. Lost in the world of darkness without a guiding light, seeking a friend to help my struggling, sailing plight. Now all of you good people just go on passing by, leaving me with nothing but this lonely will to die. Somewhere in this lonely lonely world of sorrow and woe, there's a place for me to hide, but where, I do not know. For no matter where I go, I will never escape. The devil's reaching, clutching hands or the drink of the fermented grape. So out of my grief and anguish, perhaps some wandering boy will see long after I have left this world and build his own life strong and good and free. Tragic words from a young person who took his life 
Or consider these words, the musings of Solomon as he reflected on the hedonism, the love of pleasure that he embraced. He pens these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now in light of those three very sobering Lines. I have entitled the message this morning, The Joyful Journey. And while God calls us to live lives, to live Christian lives that are absolutely exploding with joy, most people I've found are living lives that are anything but joyful. And so the question I pose this morning is, where do we find the joy That we all long for. Where do we find the joy that that every human heart craves so very much? There are three very important uh, principles that emerge in this verse. John chapter 17, verse 13. I want to share them with you. The first is this. As we begin to answer the question, where do we find this joy? Where does it come from that we begin here? We reflect on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to be a a people filled with joy, we begin here by reflecting on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ reflects on the things that he said while he was still in the world. Look at it with me in verse 13. And we are more than ever going to really tackle this passage. It's the only verse that we will preoccupy ourselves with. And so we will have the the luxury of going very deep this morning. Jesus prays to the Father, but now I am coming to you. Remember now, he is just moments from hanging on the cross for the sins of the world. He knows as the omniscient Son of God. What is just around the corner? Why? Because in eternity past, he came into that covenant with God the Father, where he agreed, where he willingly consented, where he submitted in eternity past, and now he commits in real time and space to the eternal plan of the Father to die on the cross for sinners. Could we not stop right there and be absolutely astonished at the depth of, of the love that God has for his people. And so Jesus says, I'm coming to you and these things, mark that, these things I speak in the world. And so at this point, Christ reflects on these things. And if you're a careful student of scripture, you will ask yourselves, what is Jesus referring to? What are these things That he talks about. Well, go back with me and do a quick review. Back to verse 2 in John chapter 17. I believe that these things are all the things that have led up to verse 13. He begins in verse 2. We see that God the Father granted Jesus authority over all people that he might give eternal life to the elect. Verse 2 says very plainly. Since you have given him, that is Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3, we see this. Those that the Father had given the Son shall know him personally. Think about that. They shall know him personally. They shall have eternal life. Do you know, as we talked this morning in Veritas, there are, are not any other world religions where you know God Personally, personally, where you walk with him, where you commune with him, where you have intimate relationship with him. You confess your sins to him. You share your joys with him. You explain all about the details of your life to him. John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. As we uncovered the reality of that passage, we came to this conclusion that eternal life is not simply going to heaven. 
You see, that's what many of us are raised with. Eternal life means going to heaven, we are told. Oh, but remind yourselves, eternal life is this. It is knowing the God of the universe. Heaven is a fringe benefit. That's the essence of the Christian life, to know the living God. In verse 4, Jesus brought the Father glory by completing the work he gave him to do. In verse 6, Jesus revealed the Father to the elect. And what is the response of God's people, the elect? Verse 7, the elect acknowledge that everything the Son has is from the Father. And then in verse 9, notice what happens. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours. It's another great reality that should absolutely astonish us that Jesus prays for us. Verses 11 and 12, we uncovered this last week where Jesus prayed that the Father would protect the elect so that they would be one Just as the Father and the Son are one, that perfect fellowship, that perfect intimacy that has existed between the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, from all eternity to all eternity. When you look back at, quote-unquote, these things that Jesus makes us aware of in his prayer, it reminds us of this. We have much to be thankful for, do we not? Once again, we could stop right here and by way of review, start in John 17, verse 2 and work our way all the way up to verse 12 and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for delivering me from the power of sin. Thank you for delivering me from the the penalty of sin. And thank you that one day you will deliver me from sin's very presence. I believe that there is a great need among Christians today as we reflect on the ministry of Christ. And I believe that the great need among Christians, all of us included, is summed up in one word. It's the word perspective. Don't we need perspective? I was sharing with a few of the elders this morning a story that I don't have time to recount now. But as I was praying for a friend of mine, a a dear mentor friend of mine who lives in eastern Oregon, I was struck with the importance of having God-centered perspective. You see, we are so prone to wandering. As the great hymn says, we're not only prone to wander, we are prone to leave the God we love. Although, as we learned last week, that will never happen, right? We will never leave the God we love, and our God will never leave us because he secures our salvation to all eternity. But we are nonetheless prone to wandering like the disciples, and we tend from time to time to lose perspective. Would, would you do something with me, just so I know I'm on the right track? Would you shake your head if you lose perspective from time to time? Lots of you are shaking your heads. It's like we're a church full of bobbleheads. <laughs> I like that. But we, as fallen people, lose perspective. And there are several things that I dealt with as I studied this passage. They are joy robbers. There are things that come into our lives and they they snatch up our joy. They steal away our joy. You think about Peter, who experienced what many of us experience, myself included, fear. You remember Peter as he was walking on the water. He had that, that magnanimous faith walking on the water. Can you believe that? And what does he do? He takes his eyes off his Savior and he begins to sink and the Lord Jesus Christ says this, O oh, you of little faith. I don't know about you, but that's the last thing I want the Savior to say to me. O oh, you of little faith. Yet how many of us are, are exactly like Peter, where we, we wrestle, we battle with the sin of unbelief. Or perhaps one of the joy robbers in your life is anxiety, the, the twin of fear. 
It's interesting because the one who failed to trust Jesus on the water, the one who was rebuked by Jesus when he said, Oh, you of little faith, later in his adult life, he pens these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, or 5 rather, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, the apostle Peter understood what it was to have fear. He understood what it was to, to be hamstrung with anxiety. And he learned that the antidote was to cast all his fear on the Lord Jesus Christ. Another joy robber that you may have experienced is the sin of bitterness. The sin of bitterness. The writer of Hebrews warns us, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When I was a young youth pastor, this was one of the most important verses in my toolbox with young people is I would see young people. I would see junior high school students and high school students who would struggle with bitterness and I would come alongside them and I would challenge them and admonish them to to run from the center of bitterness. Why? Because the word of God says that you will miss the grace of God if a bitter root grows up and that it will grow up to cause trouble and defile many. And by God's grace, that is a verse that, that gripped the hearts of young people because the word of God, not me, the word of God convinced them. If I struggle with bitterness, no matter what that bitterness is about, that I defile myself, I defile my brother, my sister, I defile my mother and my father and my aunt and my uncle. I defile everyone around me. Bitterness is a horrible joy robber that we need to run to the cross and lay it at the foot of Jesus and have him deal with it. And at the end of the day, one of the joy robbers that we all wrestle with, if we're honest, is an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart. You say, Pastor, I believe Jesus. You say, Pastor, I trust Jesus. Do you trust him with your marriage? Do you trust him with your relationships? Do you trust him with your future relationships? Young people, do you trust him with your future career? Do you trust him with your future education? Do you trust him when the diagnosis is the last thing you want to hear? Do you trust him when your spouse says, I'm done with you? Do you trust him in those moments of adversity walking through the Christian life? And so we need to regain perspective by reflecting on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and renewing, once again, our relationship with him. You might say it like this. We need to reset our bearings. From time to time, I'll go to a concert. I love music. I'll go to a concert and the guys will be up there playing their guitars and rocking out. Yeah, it's that kind of music. It's the good music, right? And it's only happened a few times. And someone will hit a wrong note or the drummer will be offbeat and the lead singer will go, bop, 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 stop, stop. It's really embarrassing. It's like, ooh, I feel bad for him right now. But they just have to reset. Why? Because their perspective has been totally skewed. And they have the, the courage and the integrity to say, back up the truck, reset, let's start the song again. And I believe that's what we have to do from time to time in the Christian life. We have to stop. We have to admit what we're struggling with. We have to admit the besetting sin and say, let's, let's restart this all over again. Let's take all my sin to the cross. And let's gain a God-centered and eternal perspective. And in doing so, we find comfort as we reflect on the ministry of Jesus. There's a second thing I want you to see, and that is we must rediscover something. We must rediscover the meaning of joy. And I think this is really at the heart of the message today as we, we unpack the meaning of joy. For Jesus wants his followers Jesus wants you and I to truly understand the meaning of joy. So I want you to look with me first at the essence of joy, the very essence of joy. And I think as we look at this, you'll agree with me that most Americans have no idea. They have no comprehension what joy is. Most American men, sorry men, think it goes something like this. If I have a hot car, I will be happy. Right? Right? All the girls are laughing like, yeah, it's so true. 
So Doreen and I were in Seattle about a week ago, and a Lamborghini pulls up. <gasps> Got to get a picture, right? Put the new operating system on my phone early that day, and I can't get it. I can't get it. I can't get the picture. Why do I want the picture? Because I got to have the picture of the cherry red Lamborghini. See, men think a cherry red Lamborghini will bring them joy. And what do they learn? They learn that eventually the leather seats crack. They learn eventually that the tires wear out. They learn eventually that the new car smell goes away. They learn eventually that people aren't all that impressed with their cherry red Lamborghini. That is to say, we all as the people of God need to understand the essence of joy. Now, for us as the as members at Christ Fellowship, perhaps the cherry red Lamborghini, that's not where we're at because I think I can safely say none of us will ever have one. And if you do, would you please take me for a ride? <laughs> but maybe it's something else. It's, it's, that new, it's that new computer. It's the new house. It's the new game. It's the new hobby. It's the new relationship. That is what will bring me joy. Have you experienced that when you purchase, for instance, a new product and you're so happy for about four days or four hours or like many children around the Christmas tree, four minutes? Then what do they need? They need something else. And so we need to rediscover the meaning of joy. So look with me at the essence of joy. In verse 13, once again, Jesus says to the Father, Now I am coming to you in these things that we've just learned about. I speak in the world that they, that is the elect, that is the people of God, may have what? My joy. That word joy comes from the Greek word Cairo, and it means to be glad. It means to be rejoiced. It means to, to take deep pleasure in something. And I hope it doesn't surprise you when I tell you that joy is found throughout the Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to focus especially on the New Testament for our purposes this morning. You remember in Matthew chapter 2 that the wise men, they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's the same word, Cairo. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. You remember that? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. In Luke 15, 7, Jesus, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 24, 52, they, the disciples worshipped Jesus and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I had a professor in seminary. He used to talk a lot about having a sanctified imagination which I really like. There's nothing more undignified than a, a Jewish man in the first century with robes of flailing, running, laughing, cheering. But that's what I picture here, that they headed to Jerusalem with those, can I call them men dresses? And they were cooking. Woo! They were so happy. Why? They were filled with joy. The joy of their Savior filled their hearts. In John fifteen eleven, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Mark that. We'll come back to that in a moment. In Acts thirteen fifty two, the disciples once again were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans fifteen thirteen, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we this we see this interrelationship between joy and the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and having hope. Philippians 1.25, the Apostle Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Joy in the faith. He says in Colossians 1.11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience in joy. Finally, in John, 1 John 1, 4, 
the apostle says, we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. You see, joy, as you well know, is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means that joy is not only directly from him, but joy is found exclusively in Jesus. That's why he can say these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. And so we realize this morning that joy is not found in money. Joy is not found in possessions. Joy is not found in the perfect relationship. Joy is not found in an elite education. Joy is not found in that high-paying career. Joy, you see, is not based on circumstance. It is found in knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to move from this aspect of joy to the very essence of joy and have you realize with me that joy is a present and an ongoing reality. Joy is a very present and ongoing reality. It is something that we experience day after day after day, or should I say we should experience day after day were it not for those perilous joy robbers. You see, God intends that we have, as we've seen in a few passages, that we have the full measure of joy within us. Would you look at a word with me in verse 13? Jesus says, these things I speak in the world that they may have joy. Look at the next word, fulfilled in themselves. That word fulfilled means to cause to abound. It means to to render full. It means to complete something. The Lord Jesus Christ is praying that all of his people would have the the fullness of joy. And in God's providence, as I was with a friend yesterday sitting at Starbucks, I paid like $4.75 for a flat white latte. $4.75. First John 1, 9, right? Think about it later. And so I get my, my $4.75 latte, and I, and I start to do this. I'm ready. I'm excited. Take the top off. Dig through all the foam. And about almost halfway down, the liquid starts. And I'm thinking to myself, my friend Chris Veldman accuses me of being Dutch. Maybe I am. I'm thinking, what a rip. There's nothing in this. Here's what Jesus prays for all of his people, that our joy would be filled all the way to the top. And it wouldn't just be filled to the top, but it would be overflowing. It would be overflowing. So a better illustration is I'm at Safeco Field with Nathan a few days ago. I get the nachos, right? And not just the ordinary mumbo-jumbo nachos. These are the pulled pork barbecue sauce and pump cheese nachos. Who likes pump cheese? Oh, man, it's so bad for you. And I thought to myself, I'm going to ask the guy. He was a really cool guy. Dreadlocks and earrings. I said, what a cool guy. And I thought, man, pump it on there, baby. Give me a lot. And I thought, no, I just need to be thankful for what I get for $13.50. And he he gave me the little thing of, of nachos, and the cheese was everywhere. It was awesome. It was messy. It was gooey. It was wonderful. And I thought, that's what Jesus is praying about here. That our joy, work with me on this, would be just like the cheese overflowing from those barbecue sauce pulled pork nachos. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. How do we experience the full measure of joy in Christ? Would you notice a few points by way of practical application? The first way we do it is is so obvious, I I don't even know if I need to, to state it, but I will. The first way is that we do this by having a joyful attitude. 
We do it by having a joyful attitude. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in what? The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Over in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Ah, thank you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that joy often occurs in the, in the arena of anxiety. And the scriptures are clear here. When we are anxious, we cast our cares as Peter the Apostle said, on him because he cares for us. That is, we have intentional, joyful responses, even in the midst of adversity. There's a second principle, and it's not quite as obvious, but should be. The second principle is this, that joy is a choice. Joy is a choice. I remember this is something my my mom and dad taught me growing up, is I would get been out of shape about something. I, I remember I remember my parents many times saying, Son, you have a choice. You can be joyful and you can be thankful and you can have a good attitude or you can be like you're being right now. Joy is a choice. Number three, we are joyful when we obey God. I hope that you're, you're learning that lesson, that we are learning that lesson together. When we are a joyful people, when we obey God, Jesus said in John 15, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in this love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be like gooey cheese flowing outside the nachos, that your joy may be full. Finally, we are joyful when we commune with God. We are blessed at Christ Fellowship to have Jason Scheib as our worship director and the team that he has assembled around him. And Jason, I don't say it enough, and I probably need to say it more, but I want to say, you pub- say to you publicly, thank you for your ministry. Most of you have no idea at the work behind the scenes that Jason goes to, along with the team that he has assembled, so that we are singing songs that glorify the Lord Jesus, so that we are singing songs that are, are rich in theological reality. We learn this. We are joyful when we commune with God. I go so far to say something like this. If you are filled with misgiving, if you are filled with complaints during the worship at Christ Fellowship, something needs to change. Because the songs that we sing are God-exalting songs. They are Christ-glorifying songs. John sixteen twenty four. Jesus said, Until now... You have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be, help me, complete. Your joy will be full. Finally, I want you to see with me that we must reclaim our joy in God. We must reclaim our joy in God. I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. Let me say this. The origin of our joy, the origin of our joy comes from God himself. And I want to utter a statement. And as I've talked about this over the years, sometimes you get get interesting responses. But it it is a, a truth that is taught from cover to cover in sacred scripture. And that is this, that God is a joyful God. God is a joyful God. God is a happy 
God. First Chronicles 16.27 says, Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy in his dwelling place. There's a philosophy professor who teaches on the East Coast that I have followed for almost 30 years, and Peter Crave says it like this, Joy bubbles and brims at the very heart of God, the heart of reality. God is an overflowing fountain of joy, a volcanic explosion of joy, a trillion bursting suns of joy, a joy that would utterly break our hearts if we touched even on a drop of its source. He is the joy that does break our hearts with love and longing whenever we catch a taste of it in human love or see the shadows of it in the beauties of nature or hear the remote echoes of it in the beauties of nature or hear the great echoes of it in great music. Dr. Kraith goes on to say, God does not give joy. God is joy. And he gives himself, and therefore joy, without limit, without stinginess. The only limit is on our part. And that limit is not our merit, but our desire. You see, Jesus is the very source of joy that we not only can, but must tap into as his followers. I want to encourage you this morning. To let pain serve as a catalyst for joy. You see, if you're like me, when pain comes into your life, the first thing you do is say, ouch. And then the second thing you do is you live your life moment after moment, nursing the wounds of the pain. Can you relate to this? But I want to encourage you, encourage myself to let pain serve as a catalyst for joy. And Paul encourages this kind of thinking in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. He says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now listen, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces Endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There again, we see the interrelationship between joy and adversity and hope. Moreover, let me encourage you to allow the trials in your life be used as a catalyst for joy. James chapter 1 addresses this very issue in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, Christ, Christ wants his joy to consume our lives. That is the truth point I want to leave with you today, that Christ wants his joy, as he says in John 17, and not some other temporal joy, not some fleeting joy, but his joy to consume our lives. And so lasting joy, lasting joy is found exclusively in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, if you do not have a relationship with God, The gospel that you need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that God sent Jesus Christ to live the life that you could never live and to die a death that you deserve to die. And the Lord Jesus Christ calls upon you to trust him, to turn to him, to turn from your sins, to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture says you will be saved. As we close this morning, before we go to the Lord's table, I want to ask, could we, could we get just real, real honest, real kind of bare-knuckled honest together? Because as I think about the church in general, I look around the church, especially in America, and I see people who are complete in Christ I see people who are imputed with the very righteousness of Jesus. I see people who, as the scripture says, are, are seated in the heavenlies. 
I see people who have a rich inheritance, as we learned last week, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But in spite of all these great theological realities, I see people who are living a joyless existence. And I wonder this morning, are you one of them? It works kind of like this. At some point in our life, something happens. Something happens where a a, a marriage goes sour. And in in the back, if you can't see what this is, these are limes. But the, the marriage goes sour. And our life begins to head south. Or perhaps there's another relationship uh, that goes bad. Perhaps there's something in your life where, where all things appear to be against you. It might have happened 20 years ago. It might have happened 20 days ago. It might have happened just yesterday. But life just continues to deal pain to you. And what happens? You taste the pain. And you do know that some illustrations come with a cost. Did you know that, Kirk? Some illustrations are... (laughs) I won't do it. (laughs) I really thought of bringing Nathan up here and surprising him, but I I can't do that to my, my son. But we go through life, and we face the pain. Have you ever seen a Christian like that? Have you ever gone to the store and you run into your friend and you're like, whoa, like, right? What have you been drinking? I want to ask, have you ever met someone like that? But the more important question is this. Are you that person? And would an illustration like this perhaps bring it to light? Bring it to the light of day. It's almost as if watching the crazy pastor drinking the fresh lime juice is a portrait of your own life. Or if you came to church this morning, you could look in the mirror and think, I'm a happy person. I'm a happy gal. I'm a happy guy. But then you you witness it and you think to yourself, that's me. I'm a person who battles bitterness. I am angry for what my wife did to me 20 years ago. I am angry about that event that happened five years ago. I battle unbelief. I battle sinful anger. I battle the sin of pride. I battle with being a cynic. I battle with being judgmental. All I do is I take my bony finger and I wave it in the face of people that love me. It's as if all I do is cut the lime and squeeze it into the glass and drink it. And all my friends around me at church are going, dude, put the limes away. It's time to walk together on this joyful journey. And so how do you find that joy? How do you find that joy that that we all crave together? First, you reflect on the ministry of Jesus and stoke the fires of joy, knowing that, that Jesus Christ came to reconcile you to a holy God. How could such a reality lead to anything but a life of joy? You see, I'm not going to do it again because it's getting really old, right? But to, but to live this kind of existence is a complete contradiction to historic Christianity. We are children of the King. We are seated in the heavenlies. We have been forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. They are buried in the sea of forgetfulness. They are behind God's back. They're, our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. In fact, the Bible says that God forgets our sins. And the amazing thing of that is he's omniscient, but he says, I forget your sins. Yet we walk 
with a lime-like expression on our face. Secondly, rediscover the meaning of joy and stoke the fires of joy, knowing that it is the joy of the Lord who is your strength. I remember singing that song as a boy. The joy of the Lord is my strength over and over again. And it cemented that reality in my mind and my heart, but I need to be reminded of it. That's why we come on a weekly basis to, to hear the word of God, to celebrate the gospel. And we need to remind one another, put the lemons away. Walk in the joy that is yours in Christ. Third, reclaim your joy in God. Why? Because he is a joyful God and he delights in being your joy. I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but the first time I heard Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, it was several years ago, I heard it in a Stephen Curtis Chapman song, of all places. Thank you, Stephen Curtis Chapman. And here is what that verse says. For as a young man marries a young woman, you have the image in your mind, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We have no need for these anymore. Because the God of the universe smiles on his people. Everything that is true of Christ now is true of you. The life that Jesus lives, he is imputed now to you. He has not only forgiven you, of, forgiven you of your sins, but now you're seated in the heavenlies with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we reclaim our joy in God. And finally, we recognize that being a person of joy, being a person of joy is a fight. It is a fight. And if you haven't realized that the fight for joy is a real battle, it's coming. To, to get rid of the limes is, is a daily battle. We need to embrace what is ours in Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It was many years ago I read... The book, When I Don't Desire God, by John Piper. He uttered these words in that book. Nothing shows the direction of the deep winds of the soul like the demand for radical, sin-destroying, Christ-exalting joy in God. You see, Christ wants his joy to consume our lives. May our lives be a reflection of that great reality. Not only when we come to worship together in the morning on Sunday at Christ Fellowship, but may that be the reality that exudes from our lives. And if you're like me, think about the nachos. May you be that kind of a person at the workplace, on the football field, in the classroom, in your home, wherever it is you are, may you be filled with joy. And I would be the first to admit that it is a fight. It is a fight. And it is a choice that I need to make every day. It's a choice that you need to make every day to be a people who say farewell to the limes. In fact, the only time I want to see the limes is when I'm eating Thai food. Can we agree with that together? May God strengthen you. And give you grace to walk in the joy that his son intended. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you for reminding us uh, through the words of your son about the reality of joy and the, the great necessity of joy. God, I think if we were all honest, we would confess that the joy robbers are an ever-present reality. Whether it's bitterness, whether it's fear, whether it's sinful anger, whatever might threaten to to eclipse our joy god i pray that we would be reminded and refreshed with this great reality today thank you that jesus 
you are our joy, that you are our strength, that we have freedom in Christ. We thank you that you have delivered us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Thank you for the great reality of the gospel. Thank you for the freedom of the gospel. Now, God, as we learn what it is to be a follower of Christ here at Christ Fellowship, would you fill our hearts with joy? Would you enable us each day to be the kind of people you want us to be? May the world see a difference in the folks at Christ Fellowship. May they see a joy that perhaps that they have never experienced before, a joy that is not fleeting, a joy that is not temporal, a joy that is grounded in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.